Every time when I meet myself on the mat, I really get to see and be with who I am and how I am in that moment. Not who I'm trying to be or who I'm aspiring to be. It's like, well, where am I right now? And from that place, I can ask what I need. And because you're working at a pace that's allowing you to be very mindful with yourself, I can hear a response and really meet myself where I am. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, our guest is Roshana Green, the Director of Equity and Contemplative Psychotherapy at the Nalanda Institute. Roshana also teaches compassion-based resilience training, as well as forest yoga. And when she's not teaching or coaching, Roshana is a global explorer, continuously seeking new methods of movement to enrich her life and the lives of those she teaches. Together, we got into what makes diversity initiatives successful versus unsuccessful, potent versus ineffective, how and why code switching functions, what are some key traits of a truly inclusive leader, what she believes is the future of diversity and equity work, and how she's able to stay positive, focused, and radiantly alive while pursuing her career path. So join us for this great conversation with Roshana Green. Roshana Green, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Vessel. It's such a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Today, you're a director of equity and contemplative psychotherapy. How about the focus on equity? Where's the roots of that? How does that come into your being as something that you feel deeply passionate about exploring and sharing? This is going to, hopefully it doesn't sound trite or cliche, but that is a result of navigating all these spaces in this body, like with this skin, in this configuration. I currently live in New York, but I am from Houston, Texas. So I'm Texan, which is an identity I still hold near and dear, regardless of whether or not I always uh, agree with everything that's going on in my home state. Born and raised in Houston, oldest of four children. I grew up in Fifth Ward, Houston, which is a very poor neighborhood. And my mother was uh, really working to do the best she could with what she had, raising four kids, mostly on her own. So I'd also say from an early age, I was, as the oldest, I was a child that took it upon myself to be like the helper. Like I wanted to help my mom manage what what she was managing. So uh, while a child, uh, you know, also a child, I always felt like I was shouldering a little extra. I was a smart child, like I got good grades. And so I don't recall ever being concerned that I was being labeled a nerd either. Like it just didn't hold a lot of concern for what people external to myself were thinking about me, which has a lot of benefit to it, pros and cons. As smart as I am, and as skillful as I've told you, I am at code switching and navigating spaces. And, you know, I'm good at networking. I'm good at advocating for myself, these things. I still was constantly feeling impacted by being one of very few people that look like me in spaces and feeling challenged to figure out how to access more, what felt like more equity or belonging for myself in spaces, but how beyond just myself, like 
how do we crack these doors open? Like, how do you just like crack it open and change this? And it was from that place of curiosity that I just started studying on my own, different approaches, different ways people were doing this work and even studying with some folks on just various approaches of integrating the conversation around equity and inclusion into spaces. Talk to me about choosing to go to college at Dartmouth, your, your goals and your ambitions and your reasons for choosing this school. I was fortunate that the high school I went to had an accelerated program within it. And this accelerated program was really focused on math and science. And for that reason, quite a few top, especially university, uh, engineering focused universities and colleges, and also Ivy League colleges would come to my high school uh, to recruit or to learn about opportunities, like what students they might be able to to get. And that's how I was introduced to Dartmouth through some alum, some alumni from my high school who'd gone to Dartmouth. I had quite a few options. And what my mindset was about college was that I wanted to put myself in a position to get the best education I possibly could. And there's a lot of places you can get great educations. However, most of my schooling up to this point had been in predominantly Hispanic and Black learning environments. I got a very good education, but I also was aware that this was not the constitution and makeup of many of the spaces I might be navigating beyond high school and as I got, got out into the working world. So it was important to me to not go to a school that was like a historically Black uh, college or go to a school that was similar to my educational experiences to, to that point. So I did want to go to something that was more of a mainstream school where I knew I would be a small percentage of the people of color, knowing that that would come with whatever challenges and, and potential discomfort. But I also saw the value in getting an Ivy League education. And again, I will say for the record, I don't think that you necessarily your Ivy League education is a better education than a state school. But even at an early age, I have the awareness of the weight of that, the name, like an Ivy League college, having that on your resume. I knew that that would potentially open doors and create more opportunities for me. And so it was a no brainer. Can we talk a little bit about code switching? I think, co first of all, code switching is something that many people do just like subconsciously without thinking about it in a way to try to create comfort for themselves and access, begin to access some sense of belonging in a space that might be different from the spaces they traditionally occupy or the people or th that is made up of people different from who they typically spend time around. One of my, when you mention code switching and you mention it in the context of Dartmouth, the first memory that comes up for me is being from Texas at that point, going to college, I had a very heavy accent. And I recall numerous situations where people would ask me to repeat things because they'd want to hear me talk because they thought it was so cute. Like it was so interesting to hear the Southern 
this Southern accent or this specifically this Texan accent, but it wasn't said in a, it didn't feel complimentary. It felt like I was being made fun of. And I don't even think they had the intention of making fun of me. It just was one of those situations that arise from a place of uh, lack of awareness and ignorance and things of this sort. And I remember intentionally spending time working on not speaking with an accent as in, you know, talk about a proactive approach and a proactive form of code switching, literally trying to drop my accent so that it wouldn't be the primary way that someone identified me or a box that someone would put me in uh, as they're beginning to have a conversation with me, if that makes any sense. Again, as with everything, there are pros and cons, like code switching allows you to more easily for yourself, navigate spaces such that, again, so you can start to access some feeling, felt sense of equity and belonging and inclusion. And it's a slippery slope because if you find yourself, and especially in the context of trying to navigate different work environments and spaces and say you're trying to develop yourself in your career and your networking. And if you find that you're at a point you're spending most of your time feeling like you're unable to be and speak in a way that's aligned with your most authentic self, then that is definitely not positive. Like this is definitely, that's crossed a line. And I was always adept and still am at coming into a space and figuring out how do I access belonging for myself here? Like not waiting for someone to give me permission to belonging, not looking for someone to curate it for me, but asking myself and feeling in for myself, what would make me feel like I belong here? And yes, and some pieces of that are are code switching or adjusting your manner of speech and, you know, some things maybe about your appearance, maybe it's how you dress in certain places. And again, some of this is very, I think is helpful. If in your everyday life, you just wear sweatpants, but you're working a job that is business casual, it's probably skillful to move into and adjust to wearing business casual clothing in your workplace, if that's going to help you access, you know, more belonging in that space. But if you once you get to a point where you don't feel like you can wear your hair the way that you, that's in alignment with who you authentically are, then I think things can start to move into a more injurious, little bit of a, a negative space. So returning to the conversation on diversity and equity, Let's talk about diversity in organizations. Daring to have the conversation about and challenge some of the diversity initiatives that you typically see organizations undertake. And, and honestly, they might have good intentions, but how and why they fail so much. And yeah, tell me, let's dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, right. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that, because I, I have a sense of what you're talking about, kind of like the check the box uh, diversity initiatives. Yeah, but here's the funniest thing. Here's what I'm going to start by saying. They're check the box diversity initiatives. But I can honestly say from working with some folks, a lot of places doing check the box diversity initiatives do not have the intention of doing check the box diversity initiatives. They want to do better. 
but they honestly don't know how to do better. And what I'll say, one of the hugest pitfalls of diversity initiatives are two things. There is predominantly a focus on diversity without thinking about equity and inclusion. Uh -huh. What I mean is we think, okay, we look around a space, we say, this is woefully homogenous. We would like for this to be more inclusive, right? Like we want this to be more inclusive. We want people of all shapes, colors, ages, forms to feel like they can come and be and belong in this space. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things organizations will do is say, well, let's just invite more people. Let's invite other people other than ones that look just like us. Let's invite more people here. They invite more people. Some people come, some people are there for a while. Then many of those people leave. And then, and then folks in the organization are often sitting around scratching their head. Like, but we, we did the thing. We invited the people. Why didn't they stay? And honestly, people are truly befuddled about this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not befuddling to me because I live in this body and I've been in these spaces that the reason why this fails is because, and I think I gave you this analogy when we spoke before, but I am going to use it again because I think it's helpful. It's like you throw a party and you realize, you throw a weekly party and you realize, man, this party is pretty homogenous. I would like everybody to come to this party. Everybody is really welcome here. So you send out these invitations to a bunch of different people because you want everyone to come to your party. And some people come to your party. They stand around. They might have a, a drink and then they leave in 15 minutes. You're like, but wait, why didn't they stay? Well, they didn't stay because you threw the same old party that you always throw and you didn't spend any time thinking about or, or researching or understanding what it is that all of these other people that you would like to come and be in your space and stay in your space, what is it that they like and want in a party? If you throw the same party and you just invite different people, the revolving door effect is going to be a constant. And you'll be standing yeah. around scratching your head. So in order to have sustainable, to sustainably diversify a space in a meaningful way means that you have to be willing to scrap your party idea, start from scratch and say, what would a party design, what would a party look like that is inclusive to more people? not just the people we usually have at our parties. What would that look like? That means you need to talk to a lot of different people. You got to figure these things out. It might mean different decorating, different music, different type of invitations. The food might be different. All of these things. But you have to be willing to like not hold things as sacred. Like it mm -hmm. it is a it's a sensitive thing. It's sensitive, right? Because you're like, "But I've always done this this way and I'm good at doing this." That's great. We don't have to take that away from you. You can still have been good at that, still set that aside and be open to learning to do something in a different way and being adaptive in how you execute that such that you are being more dynamic in your space holding so that the people that come through your space can have a better opportunity at possibly seeing themselves reflected there, feeling like it's a place that not only just sends them an invitation, invited them in, but actually wants them to stay, that cares about what they have to contribute to the party. 
that would help let them help plan the party and design the party, like all of that. But it's, but it's all of that. And I feel that unintentionally, many organizations execute diversity initiatives this way. When you get a chance to work with organizations doing diversity and equity work, do you often get the chance to do it over a long-term basis or is it more sort of being brought in on a temporary, you know, like a one-time initiative? It's a good question. A mix of all of that. I prefer to work with someone over a long, long term and really get aligned with, understand what their goals are, get aligned with their strategy and understand their commitment to integrating equity into everything they're doing. Because if you want to actually create equity, inclusion, diversity, it requires a culture shift. And that actually takes time. It takes time. It takes, that takes a lot of time. I will say that I've done some more acute or, you know, short-term work with folks where you have to meet people where they are and organizations and groups and people are in different spaces. And sometimes what people need to get unstuck in this work is a reframing on how Mm -hmm. they're looking at this work. And so I've come into organizations and or groups and help them start by with a level set of understanding who we are as human beings, how we're naturally wired to in-group, out-group one another, how we, we are naturally, you know, challenged to, you know, sort of be thrown into survival mode sometimes when we are encountering um, differences, different people, different spaces, all of these dynamics. I, I'm curious about something that you said. You, you mentioned that we're naturally wired to be sort of in-group, out-group. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So so t- tapping into a little bit of like developmental psych here, as babies, we imprint on whoever our primary caregivers are, whether they're grandparents or aunties, uncles, you're a village of people, it's your, your parents. And oftentimes these are people that look just like us, right? So these become our safe people. Hmm. And if, I don't know if you've ever, oftentimes, I know I've experienced this before, coming across a, a, a toddler, um, I'm a, you know, a, a brown skinned woman and coming across like a, a white skinned child. And it's from a place of pure innocence, but a look of like confusion and curiosity on their face because they're like, wow, she looks so different and they don't know what to do with it. Like they're just trying to figure out, they're like, wait a minute, this is new information because what they're up against there is like, this person looks different from everybody I spend time around and I don't know what to do with this person. And what we naturally do, and it's a subconscious thing when we meet new people. So beyond like being children, even as adults, it's it happens in a split second. We see someone and we're already trying to put them in boxes. Like I see mm-hmm. you and I could be like, white, man, maybe, you know, like I'm reading things. We even go over like, you know, straight, whatever it is, whatever. I'm, I'm just, you know, it, I'm looking at you on a screen. I might say, he looks like he might be tall, whatever. We're categorizing, right? We're just putting things because mm-hmm. we're trying, this is how we grapple with information that's that's new to us. Like when we were learning yeah. that something was red and blue and that this is a ball and this is whatever, right? A stick. It's the same thing. We're mm-hmm. doing that with human beings. And now what happens is because we do that, we also unintentionally 
it informs how we even engage with those people. So people that look like us, we feel a likeness and a sameness. And there's um, there's an in-group, like, so you're like me, we're in the same group. I might ask you immediately questions about like, how are you feeling? Or how are you doing? Instead of trying to further contextualize you versus if I've already sort of quickly assessed you as out-group, something other, I might ask further confirmational questions because I'm still trying to categorize you. For instance, I travel a lot. I travel, I'll be in Europe and I am a brown-skinned woman, but I have some, I have smaller features. What this means is in some of the countries I've been in, they may be used to seeing people with brown skin um, that are from certain countries in Africa that have different features. One of the first questions people ask me is, where are you from? Mm-hmm. Which I'm a little snarky. And so I say Texas, but I know that's not what they're asking because they're trying to figure out, they're like, but wait, you're black. Like, what country are you from? You don't look like the other black people I've seen. Like, what's happening here? And it's all, it's innocent. However, it's innocent from its intention, but being on the receiving end of these things can make people feel, it feels like, um, it feels exclusionary because it it lacks a warmth because you feel like someone's trying to put you in a box or trying to identify you as opposed to trying to get to know you which is connected because asking a question that's connective makes me feel like, Oh, Sam wants to get to know me. But if you ask me something that's more contextualizing thinking, he's just still trying to figure out what box to put me in. And that, that doesn't make me feel human. It doesn't make me feel welcome. And it, without your intention, it's a subconscious thing happening. You're, unintentionally compromising my feelings of inclusion or access to belonging in said space that I might be interacting with you in. So some of the training I do is to really help people understand those things foundationally for a couple reasons. One, so we build awareness of the fact that we all do that. We all do it as human beings, no matter what skin we're in, we do that to one another. And to sort of take the tone down around the scariness of even broaching these topics in spaces. Now, I I like the way that you explain this in-group, out-group from a developmental psychology perspective, because I feel like you broaching the topic that it's natural to people might extinguish some of the shame that people might feel. And that's like one of your jobs, I would imagine, coming into the organization and you're going to bring a new kind of paradigm in, but you're going to have to deal with people pushing that paradigm away because it might threaten them. Absolutely. Shame extinguishing is definitely on the job. Is the job description is on the, on the list because the problem with shame First of all, shame is an emotion we all experience at at different times. And like any other emotions we experience, we need to allow ourselves to like be in that, experience it, understand what that's about without getting stuck and over-identifying with it. Because over-identifying with it and being stuck in it leads to mm, a fear-based inaction, right? A fear-based lack of of action uh, and a lack of doing work both personally within an organization within different groups because you're afraid of being labeled as oh the person that doesn't get it or the person that is 
the problem, right? That's that's creating an environment that isn't inclusive. Everyone's, so many people are afraid of that. I mean, there's some people that actively want to exclude people, but for the most part, many people are not looking to do that. They just don't know how to do better. They fear change. And mostly people fear failing and fear looking inadequate at things that they want to execute. How do you know when this work that you're doing around diversity and equity within organizations is effective? I mean, like how do signs of health or change surface organizationally? Variety of ways. Um, so I look at it a couple of different ways. And this is both for like external organizations. And I also think about, you know, Nalanda Institute, the organization I, I work within as director of equity. When you start to see the people that you serve or whoever your client base is, if you want to use that term, client or customer base, diversify. Literally, you, you see, see that, you see different people coming, engaging in what it is that you have to offer sustainably and they're staying connected to your community or they, they're wanting to i think that's an indicator that's a that's a more externally driven indicator right that's coming from you know people coming to you and saying engage with you internally to me it looks like an increase in ability to be in discomfort together mm, wow because that's critical and i'll tell you I'll, I'll let me say a little bit more about that and then let me tell you why that's important when you're not comfortable, when you're not able to be in discomfort with one another as like, say, a team working together, what it looks like is shutting other voices down. It looks like ignoring problems. It looks like um, when someone does speak up, it looks like um, making them a bad guy or ostracizing them. It looks like passive aggressive communication because there's a lack of freedom for people to skillfully, not saying people need to be shouting at one another, saying you can skillfully share mm. what is troubling you, what you feel is off. You can skillfully disagree and communicate that without making someone a villain like, Sam, you know, you're a bad guy because of this. I could instead express, hey, Sam, when X, Y, and Z happened, it made me, I felt this way, you know, and I don't think, you know, what we agreed upon before, like what we said as a group is that we want to create an environment where we all feel like this, right? Or that we get to work together this way. And so I think it just, what it facilitates as you become more adept at being and navigating uncomfortable things together, that creates space for more inclusion and equity and diversity. And I'll tell mm. you why. Because as a person of color, I've had this, and I can't say my statement does not, you know, is it going to be representative of every black person or every other person of color? But a conversation I've had with many other people of color is culturally, as people of color, there are ways in which we handle strife, stress, uncomfortable things, right? Like I've been with quite a different different groups of friends or family. And when something's off or something's not right, you speak about it, you say it. Even if things, tensions get a little bit warm to heat it, like temperatures rise and things like this, you're able to hash it out. And then you clear it and you move and you can move forward. And 
what I've seen in many dominant culture spaces, spaces that are predominantly white, is a lack of, I'm going to label it this way. I'm going to say it feels like a lack of interest, maybe a lack of skillfulness in being in that hot moment, Mm. in that sticky situation, in that like, ooh, I don't know what's going to happen. This doesn't feel good right now. And there's some, then some action is taken to hit an eject button to make that go away. It's like, let's ignore that problem. Let's ignore what that person said. Let's be passive aggressive about like whatever, because we don't want to talk about that. And if that person keeps trying to raise the subject, we're just going to keep shutting it down because that feels ugly and we don't want to look at that and we don't want to talk about it. And that is part of the reason why you have a revolving door of mm-hmm. people of color leaving places because eventually after so much of that and a lack of organizations and spaces accommodating a different the possibility of a different communication style or a different way of processing things together, people start to feel like this is hopeless. There's no space for me here. There's no space for my voice or the way I communicate, the way I process. I'm not valued this feels unsafe. I need to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why the diversity and equity initiatives can fail. I mean, just one is that I think within organizations, the bottom line oftentimes gets the most focus, the most energy. Yeah. When you're entrenched in a capitalist system, as we all are, yes, we are. you can always point to the financial health of the organization as being paramount, Right. And things like diversity and equity initiatives will get some shine, some spotlight, particularly when there is something that's predominant in the news and the media. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of like, you know, Beacon gets shined on organizations, too. It's like, can we because if people are issuing this clarion call, you know, is sort of across the mainstream media, it immediately the next level of reflection is sort of like, well, what are corporations doing to fall in line with this? And then it's like, oh shit, we better <laughs> we better call up Rashana, Rashana Green, <laughs> like have oh, you know exactly. go into go into this again. So I mean. I, one thing that comes to mind with you is like you seem very open and I'm not going to say idealistic at all because you, you don't seem that, but you seem positive in the sense that you are enjoying doing this work. You're finding this work to be meaningful and you don't have the sense of like doom uh, about it. I'd love to hear about why, what, it, what is it? And, and, and part of me thinks that there's something about the fact that you do a yoga practice, that you have a lot of embodiment that is sort of forefront in your work. But yeah, I'd love to hear about how you keep grounded and positive within this work. That's a good question. I do not hold any existential dread over this work. I do this work because I 1000% see the possibility of change, right? And I see and feel a desire. And I know that there's that the, the change is possible, right? With, with acquired skill and with the will from folks then we we can make shifts and changes. But you're absolutely correct because doing this kind of work is exhausting. It can be exhausting to do and it can be depleting. And what's very important to me is to practice some of what I, I preach around uh, self-care. And it's staying connected to things that help me access and feel joy, and wonder and awe 
and embodied practices do that for me. That's one way, like moving my body. First of all, moving helps me move things through and move things out. So all of what I am, the work I'm doing with the folks or what I'm just navigating in my own life is not feeling stuck within me, right? That I'm not like letting that take up all of the space in my world. Like there's still gotta be, even if I'm navigating something big and hard and unwieldy, I don't care if it's just a sliver left, it's gotta be a sliver of something that feels joyful. Very, so it's very, very important to me. What practices for you are your pathways to groundedness, to joyfulness, to pleasure? Absolutely. I'm going to give you a list of them. and They're going to be a little all over the place. Salt baths, bath bathing in some salt water. There's something that like immersing myself in salt water, water is just really purifying as though you're really like drawing out like whatever, what doesn't serve me, washing away from that day what I don't need to carry forward. Sometimes it looks like putting my hands in the earth and not that I have like a piece of land necessarily put my hands in, but I have 35 plants. So I like bringing that little bit of uh, outside in, into my space and and working with, with plants that way. But then physically moving, my yoga practice, which I've had consistently for 15 years now, which is forest yoga practice, is a thing that nourishes me, sustains me, and keeps me honest. What is forest yoga? Forest yoga is a style of yoga created by Anna Forest. So not in the trees, people always ask me, but created by Anna Forest, Forest being her last name. It's a slower moving style of yoga that is very breath focused. You will hold positions a little longer, not at an, a yingar level of, of position hold, but long enough that you're able to really meet yourself and be with yourself and notice what's happening with you. It's very introspective. And I say it keeps me honest because every time when I meet myself on the mat, I really get to see and be with who I am and how I am in that moment. Mm. Not who I'm trying to be or who I'm aspiring to be. It's like, well, where am I right now? And from that place, I can ask what I need. I can ask myself what I need. And because you're working at a pace that's allowing you to be very mindful with yourself, I can hear a response, right? I can hear and I can respond skillfully to that and really meet myself where I am. It's my favorite thing. I can, I can see how this dovetails, how this works really hand in glove with the diversity and equity work, which can be so mental, so like degrees of mental. So, you know, what what is that person thinking? What are those people thinking about me? Well, you know what I mean? The complexity of it can be... Yep just cascading. Yes. And it seems like a conscious body centered practice can make this work so much more effective and so much more grounded. You know, everything that I'm doing feels so in alignment with one another. That practice not only sustains me, it's something I integrate into work with 
different clients, sort of in a bespoke way, depending on what people have an appetite for and what they're open to, because the reality is the more grounded we are in our bodies and the more we're able to really be in and stay in our bodies, no matter what's going on around us, when we're able to do that, we're best able to respond skillfully. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. Because when we, when something gets us, pulls us out of ourselves, right. And we're, we're ungrounded. We're, we're very much, it's very much like you're being, you're disembodied. And so you're, you're feeling ungrounded. You're feeling overwhelmed. This is where we are reactive, right? So we're not being our most skillful selves. We're not necessarily taking care of ourselves well. We don't know how to skillfully show up for others or what to do. And then you launch into one of any fight, flight, flight, faint, freeze mode, whatever is your, we all sort of typically tend towards one, but you know, any of them can be evoked by different things you're navigating. And so finding something that helps you stay grounded helps keep you in your most uh, skillful way of navigating challenge and change and chaos and all of the things. You came and, and taught at Esalen for a while just recently. Just curious about your reflections about being at Esalen. What was it like to be here, teach here? What was it like for you to spend time on this sacred land? I have been all buzzy about my time at Esalen. People may be t- tired of hearing me talk about Esalen. It's been so, it was so wonderful. A couple things. One, it was my first time being there. And it felt like saying I'd been there before doesn't really capture it. It felt like I'd always been there. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know how to make those words make more sense than how they feel to me because it felt like I'd always been there. And that's not really a phrase I've used before as it relates to feeling into a space that I'm visiting. So I felt beautifully welcomed by every human being I encountered and the land. Mm. I felt really held by the land. I can still close my eyes and hear the water, which was just mesmerizing to me. And I also experienced while I was there, well, one, my nervous system was very, very happy with it. But I also experienced these little bits of magical moments that I often experience at Burning Man random. I know this is going to sound random. But Burning Man, have you been to Burning Man before? I have. Okay. I had these experiences where I was just either running into people that I've known before or needed to have some connection with. I actually uh, ran into someone who I met at Burning Man like nine years before and hadn't seen since. And we dropped in. We did like a deep drop in immediately. And we're communicating, potentially curating, putting some things together that we want to work on. A colleague of mine from the Landa Institute, who I'd never met in person, happened to be there. It was just I am saying all this to say to you, I it was a magical mm. experience for me. And I had an opportunity to, yeah, just drop in with people, with other teachers that were there, with other people visiting and more please. I think that's the, those are the words that come to mind, come to mind for me. <laughs> yeah, it felt it felt really good to have you there. Um, yeah, oh, it felt very you. natural. It was almost like I resonate with what you're saying about you, like you had always been there. It's like, hmm, yeah, 
you seemed really comfortable and it was your presence was very welcome. Thank you. It felt like I'm I'm really and I probably used this phrase already in our conversation. I'm really into listening to and formulating my decisions on things from a felt sense instead of a head-based yeah. place. I'm a very like if you gathered anything about my upbringing, different things. I was always a very heady kid. I like to read. I like to study. I like science. I like all, all of these things. Being more embodied was something I acquired along the way. But I'm thinking of things in the context of what does this feel like? Does this feel like a yes or does this feel like a no? And being at Esalen felt like a, like a full system, full body yes. Yes. Before we go, just a couple, just returning to the this idea of diversity and equity and inclusion and in, in what we've kind of chatted about, what do you think are the key traits of an inclusive leader, like a truly inclusive leader? Mm, number one, starting with knowing that you don't, you don't know it all being and being okay with not having the answers. Mm. It, it's, I think it's easy to get stuck as a leader thinking, I'm expected to create the strategy and know these answers. And I think it's a much more powerful, dynamic, expansive stance to step back and say, wow, there's a lot I don't know. And I'm, I'm fascinated with and I'm curious to learn more and to listen more to better understand what this work will take. Mm, mm. I think that's, that would be my key um, the other thing would be to know that fear and insecurity is a part of it. Yeah. It's challenging, confronting work. That's okay. That doesn't make mean you're going to be bad at it. That means you're a human being. And the tricky part is just like not letting that stop you, right? That's, it's, a, it's a hurdle. It's a thing to overcome or to move through mm. or work with, right? But you can still take action from that place and being and starting in that place makes you just like almost every other human being. And last I'll say, and there's many points, but these three I'll leave you with. This is, this work is an arc. It takes time. It takes time. It's not something that you can say, we're going to do these two, three initiatives and then boop, magically, you know, wave the magic wand. Then here are going to be these beautiful outcomes of diversity and inclusion doesn't work like that. It, it takes time and some things will have, you know, a modicum, a more, more modest su success and some things might move the needle more, but you'll learn that and you get to dial that in, in your specific situation, circumstance and community or organiza organization with some, with asking, listening, trial and error, and constantly being willing to make pivots and adjustments based on what you've learned and the feedback you're receiving. Okay. Here's the final, I, I love that by the way. Here, so here's the final question. Do you feel like an optimist with regards to the future of diversity and equity work? Like I, to give context for this question, I mean, there's just been such a strong reaction to anti-racism work and to this so-called woke ideology. It's become this rallying call on the right. And like the only thing that could be worse than being called a socialist now is being woke. Yep. How do you how do you think this plays out? And do you feel like this swell of resistance could could fade, and the work that that you're dedicating yourself to could be more readily appreciated and absorbed? 
I'll tell you, I am completely optimistic and I'm going to say something that might sound a little, (laughs) might sound odd. I think that the huge, this push against wokeness and this like trying to shut down education around, you know, DEI initiatives and, and these things that are more inclusive, these things, this upswell of activity makes me more optimistic. I'll tell you why, because that is fear-based. That's, that's a fear-based reaction because the work is working, because the work works. Doing the work works. The change is happening. And what happens when people who are resistant to something changing and they see the change, there's an initial period where they're like, eh, nobody's worried about them. We're gonna, this is going to stay the way it is. But when people come together and really there's concerted effort and energy towards making a shift and change. Once that starts to shift, the people who don't want the change start to get flustered and they start flailing and they start doing anything they can in a last ditch attempt to keep the change from happening. That's what this is. Let's start banning books. Oh yeah. Oh no. Throwing the curriculum away. It's happening. It's happening everywhere. And while nothing hurts my heart more than like, I am, I feel deeply, you know, affected by the banning of books because books and written stories and written histories are the way in which people and and people being separated from those, those being removed, the ways in which people are disenfranchised is the way in which people are disconnected from their histories, from their lineage. They're disconnected from their power. It's the way people are disempowered. So I don't take any of that lightly because it's, it is really, really a critical, it's um, a dangerous thing that to have that happen. But the fact that the opponents of equity and inclusion and inclusive spaces and, and equal access, you know, to opportunity and equal access to thriving for all people who oppose that see that change has been happening and now they're willing to do whatever they can to fight against it. So while I'm, I feel I take seriously some of the, the actions that they're taking, it doesn't take any wind out of my sail, mm. so to speak. I, I remain optimistic because I know this is what flailing looks like when you're afraid of your opponent. Roshana Green, you're so great. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Before I let you go, can you please let our listeners know how to find you on the web? Absolutely. You can find me at my website, which is RoshanaGreen.com. And Instagram is my, you know, social media platform of choice. And there I can be followed at Roshana G. Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Music. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.